Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we are currently in chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your working in our lives, your working throughout the world. Lord, we pray for these 72 students that are going to be coming over this summer, that you would place them in the right homes uh, that are going to point them to you. God, we pray that you would feed our souls tonight, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us. Pray that you would set me aside and give me grace and strength in teaching your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be moving throughout the church tonight in junior high and high school and children's ministry. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever pondered the question, who am I? I think at some point in our lives, at several journeys in our lives, we wrestle with that question, who am I? But we also wrestle with who are others? You know, how am I supposed to view other people as well? These are some of the foundational questions in life. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? And tonight we're going to look at this issue of identity, how we're supposed to view ourselves and how we're to view other people, because Paul is wrestling with the church of Corinth. We know that they're in a sinful, carnal state. He's trying to get things back in order, on the right track, honoring God, but they're questioning Paul's leadership. Even though Paul was the founding pastor, if you would, who God used to bring them into the knowledge of Christ, they're seeing Paul through a negative lens. So more than any of Paul's letters, he's having to share more autobiographical information. He's having to share more things about who he is as a person to try to regain the trust of the church of Corinth. This had to be really heartbreaking for Paul. Maybe you've been through it to some degree. There's someone that you've invested in, someone that you've poured your life into, gone out of your way to communicate the love of Christ to them. But instead, for whatever reason, they interpret it as, I can't trust you. I, I can't really follow your, your leadership. And that's what Paul uh, was going through. And the enemy's always trying to come in in that way. So Paul's going to lay this groundwork for this reason of who he is. And there's kind of four things that he mentions about himself in this chapter to lay hold of. And the first is he's a servant. And that's how he sees himself and how others are to see himself. That he's also a steward, which means he's been trusted to manage the mysteries of God. He's responsible for that. So a servant, a steward, he considers himself to be a fool, a fool for Christ. So even though other people would look at his life and go, why would you do this? Why would you live this way? Um, Paul, he owned that. I'm a fool for Christ. And then finally, he owns that he's a father, that he's not just an instructor. He's not just a teacher, but he's a spiritual father to this church. So let's look at verse one. It says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So let a man consider us. This is the way that the church of Corinth was to see the apostles, is to see them in this light. So how do you view other people? I mean, what's the lens in which you see them? What's the biblical way to, to view people? We can put people at too low of a place. We can put people at too high of a place. And Paul's saying, just consider us to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, how do you look to a spiritual mentor, a spiritual leader? You should see them not as a superhero, but simply as a servant of Christ. 
a sinner that's been saved by grace, a sinner that's on the same journey as, as everyone else. And so Paul says, don't put me on a pedestal. See me as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. But then also, this is how we're to see ourselves. We're to see ourselves as servants of Christ. And this word servant, there's a couple different Greek words in, in the New Testament. This one literally means under rower. And it goes back to the Roman fleets and underneath, they would have the big oars, and there would be a group of slaves that simply, they would row on command. And Paul's saying, I'm an under rower to Jesus Christ. I'm taking my orders from Christ. And that's how I want you to view me. That's how I want you to view my life. And is that the way we see our lives? Do we see ourselves as under rowers for Christ? I'm a servant of Christ. It's a freeing day when we come to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're like me, this is not just a one-time, it's settled. This has got to be a daily decision. Some days I do better than others. Of taking up my cross and following Jesus Christ, see yourself as a servant. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of a servant, and after the servant has done everything that's required of him, the servant's attitude is still to understand, I'm an unprofitable servant. And a lot of times we don't like seeing ourselves in that light, we want to be recognized. We're like, I, I hope someone sees all that I'm doing. But from God's perspective, just be faithful and realize I'm replaceable. My pastor would always say, if you think you're really important, just stick your hand in a bucket of water. And as soon as you take your hand out, what happens to that space? It just naturally fills in. And as we serve the Lord, we're very much replaceable. It's God's work. It's God's ministry. We're simply taking orders from him. Paul says, I'm a, I'm a servant. But he also sees himself as a steward. Now, a steward, this was a common practice in this day, is if you had a house and you were managing it, you would then turn it over to a steward that would take care of all of the affairs. And you would be then held responsible to the master. In the same way, God has entrusted us with his mysteries. Maybe you hear this term a lot around Christians and the body of Christ is, be a good steward. And the principle of stewardship but it's this understanding that my life doesn't belong to me. These aren't my resources. These aren't my truths. These are the truths that are given by God. And I'm simply a steward of these mysteries that the Lord has given to us. Maybe you're wondering, what's the mysteries of God? You know, what are they? In 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. It's Jesus. Jesus is the mystery of God, that God would come and take human flesh, die upon the cross, rise again, so that we could be forgiven, that we could share the gospel with people that don't know Christ as our Savior. So if you know the Lord tonight, you've been entrusted the mysteries of God. God's given that truth over to you, Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh. And what are we doing with what's been entrusted to us? What are we doing with the truth that we've received from, from the Lord? We don't want to be like the Dead Sea. It's got an inflow, but no outflow. Thus, no life. We want to be like the Sea of Galilee, where there's water coming in and water going out. And there's so much life there. And as you're being spiritually poured into by the Lord, who does God want you to extend yourself to, to give un, unto others. 
So let's make this a little bit more personal tonight because it's really easy to go through these studies and get these truths academically but not have them hit our hearts. Is this really how we see ourselves? Maybe you see yourself as a failure, a blow it, and you're constantly beating yourself up. Do you think Paul could have done that if he allowed himself to? Absolutely. He persecuted the church. He had blood on his hands, if you would. He could have walked around in condemnation, but we don't see Paul walking in condemnation. He's walking in the forgiveness of the Lord, and he says, I'm a servant of the Lord. He's not beating himself up. You can walk around going, well, I'm just not very talented. There's so many other people that are more talented than me. Paul didn't do that. I'm sure there were more people that were more talented than he was, but that's not what he was focused on. I'm simply a servant of the Lord. This is what God would, would have me to do. But then sometimes we can swing to the other side, can't we? And we can start to think too much of ourselves. And we can start to think, well, I'm pretty talented. I know why the Lord has chosen me. Step back, right? And we start thinking of ourselves maybe a little bit better than, than someone else. Well, I've got some years under my belt. I've been walking with the Lord for a while. Look at my spiritual resume. And we've erred from, I'm a servant of the Lord. I've been saved by God's grace. I'm doing my best to serve God. I'm a steward over these, these mysteries of God. I want to be found faithful. I think it's easy in our culture to really be defined by what we do. So this is my job. You know, this is my vocation. These are my degrees. This is the business that I've started. That's how society sees. That's where we find a lot of our source of identity. But that's not where we find it in the Lord. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God. Being a servant of God can't be stripped away from you no matter what happens to your job. Whether you graduate college or you don't. Whether you get that master's degree or you don't. Nothing wrong with those things, but it's not the source of our identity, amen? It's not who we are. Who we are is that we're loved by God. We're beloved by God. And because he loves us, we've chosen to be the servant of the Lord. And we can serve God wherever we're at. Jobs come and go. Ministries come and go. But we can serve God wherever he places us. We're servants of the Lord. We're stewards of the ministries of God. In verse 2, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. This makes sense, doesn't it? It's hard for us to relate to, you know, turning over the management of a house to someone else, a big ranch, a big farm, a big business. But the only way you could be a steward is if you were found faithful. If you didn't pay the bills, if you didn't turn a profit, if you didn't manage things well, you didn't maintain things well, the master's gonna come in and say, I've gotta find a different steward. And Paul, again, this is his perspective of himself. He's saying, I'm a steward, and what I'm concerned with is that I'm faithful. Not even necessarily successful. Look at the difference between Jonah and Jeremiah. Let's compare the J's for a second. The J prophets. Jonah was extremely successful. He maybe experienced the greatest revival or one of the greatest revivals in history. But was he faithful? It would be hard to argue that he was faithful. He kind of got faithful after he got vomited out of a great fish. And even as he was faithful, he had a terrible attitude. It's like, oh, I knew God would forgive him. And he goes out and pouts, right? He was successful, but he was not necessarily faithful. Jeremiah was extremely faithful, but from the world's perspective, he was not successful. He didn't see one convert, but he was faithful un unto the Lord. 
And we need to reorient ourselves not with success, but faithfulness. And it's faithfulness from whose perspective? From the master's perspective. That's all the steward needs to be concerned about is what does the master think? So we don't need to be concerned with what other believers think, what peers think, what friends think, what unbelievers think. We simply need to be concerned with what God thinks. There's an audience of one. We get to serve the Lord. We get to be faithful to him. And Paul's saying, look, guys, I'm attempting to be faithful to the Lord, even though you look at me unfavorably right now. Even though you don't agree with who I am and what I'm doing, that's not my goal. I simply want to be faithful to the Lord. Galatians 1.10 is a life verse for me. It says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a slave to men and a slave to God. And living in the box of someone's mind of their expectations is a really small box to live in. And a freeing place to live in is in the will of God. I want to seek to please God. Life gets very focused and simple when we wake up on a daily basis and say, God, I want to be faithful to you. What do you have for me today? All right. I didn't accomplish all the things I wanted. I don't ever necessarily feel that I've been successful according to my own standard. But God, was I faithful to the things that you put into my heart and my life today? Stewards be found faithful. In verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. This is an interesting concept that Paul introduces to us, the human court. And we are constantly doing this to one another. When you go into a coffee shop, when you go into Costco, Chick-fil-A, Smashburger, I could keep going. You just naturally tend to size people up, don't you? Go, well, what, this is what this person's about. Or, well, I better be careful with that person, you know, for whatever reason. And we're judging them to some degree. We're sizing them up. We're putting, putting labels on them. And Paul's saying, I am not allowing you to take me into your court. So the church of Corinth may take the apostle Paul and put a failure label on Paul say, Paul's a failure, or we can't trust Paul, or Paul tells us too harsh of things. And, what, and Paul says, I don't really care. And not in a mean or cold way, but he's saying, what your opinion of me isn't what matters. It's God's opinion of me that matters. And that's a freeing thing in your life if you can get there. If you can get to that place and say, you know what? My family, they, they may write me off. My coworkers might write me off. Other believers may ridicule me. That, that could happen at different times. If you step out into God's call, into what he has for your life, but that is not the driving force in my life. What the driving force is, am I being faithful to the master? I got to answer the Lord. I'm not answering to, to all of these people. I'm answering to the Lord. But did you also find here that Paul says he doesn't even judge himself? You can take yourself to the human court, can't you? And go, man, I'm, I, I'm a failure. I'm the worst dad on the planet. I'm the worst Christian on, on the planet. Or the other can happen and it can lend towards thoughts of pride. Man, I'm really good at doing devotions. Other people should memorize verses like me. You know, I always love those that feel like, hey, you know what? I pray so much if others could just pray like me, you know, and 
Well, what happened? They put themselves in the human court and they're like, man, I'm pretty impressed with my prayer life. Man, if people could just do, do it like me. And it's dangerous, isn't it? That's not where God wants us to live because the human court is a focus on ourselves or others, but it's not a focus on Jesus. So we don't need to take people to the human court. We don't need to size them up. We don't need to try to judge them. We don't need to put ourselves in the the human court. You may be beating yourself up. Stop beating yourself up. And just simply ask the question, God, what would you want me to do? I want to be faithful to you. I don't even judge myself. In verse 4, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul has a clear conscience, but he says my clear conscience is not what justifies me. It's the blood of Jesus that justifies me. He's the one who judges me. Remember chapter 3 when we saw the judgment for believers, the Bema Seat judgment, where our lives will be tested by the fire, not for salvation, but for reward. And Paul realizes, I'm not the one who is the judge of that. God is the, the, the judge. So it's not what I think, it's what the Lord thinks. And thankfully, Jesus took the judgment for us. Thankfully, he died upon the cross and says, it is finished. And it's not appointed unto us to receive wrath. We get to go through a judgment for reward instead of receiving condemnation from from the Lord. Verse five, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. Then let each one's praise will come from the Lord. Don't judge anything before it's time. It seems like this is a little bit of a theme for us Because every once in a while, our Wednesday night study lines up with our Saturday and Sunday morning study. If you were here over the weekend, we looked at Eli. And Eli, he comes up to Hannah in the tabernacle and accuses her of being drunk when she's pouring her heart out before the God. He judged something before it's time. There was hidden things that he didn't realize, and he made a, a quick judgment. So in our lens towards other people, is don't judge before it's time. And when's the time for judgment? When Christ comes. Christ is going to come and he's going to reveal things that I would have no way of knowing, that you would have no way of knowing. We've all been there and we've gone, man, if I would have just known that. You know, have you ever kind of sized somebody up and think you've got them all figured out and then you learn something more about their life and they've been through something horrific and you go, man, I've been so hard on that person. If I would have only known I had no idea that they've been through this or they've, they've walked through this. And God will reveal it. And it needs to be more humbling about my own life. You know, what is it that's in the dark crevices of my heart that God's going to reveal? It's kind of a frightening thing to know that there's going to be that point where my heart is going to be played out before for Christ. And then it says, let each one's praise come from God. To live for his praise, for him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. For him to see the labor of love. To go, it's enough that the Lord sees. I don't have to have praise. I don't have to have accolades of men. It's easier said than done, but live for the the praise of God. In verse six, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. The church of Corinth is carnal, meaning that they're giving over to the sinful flesh and mixing it with the spirit. And part of that was there's this division. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas. And Paul's trying to teach them this is the biblical way to look at your spiritual leaders, their servants and stewards, but you shouldn't raise them up and elevate them to the point where you say, I'm a follower of this man. You're to be a follower of Christ. And as you're a follower of Christ, we're one body all together. We're linked one to another. So he's saying, just think biblically. Think biblically about Paul. Think biblically about Apollos. Think biblically about yourself. I love this in verse six. It says, to think beyond what is written. What has God said in his word about you and about me? Well, he said some bad news, hasn't he? He said that we're all sinners. All means all in the Greek. It's really profound. But if you look it up in the Greek, it means all. All are sinners. The Bible says that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? Nobody gets the get out of jail free card on that. Every heart is wicked. And then the Bible says that we're created in God's image. And the Bible says that God loves us and he sent his son to die for us. That his thoughts towards us are that of peace and, and not of evil. So don't think what, beyond what's written. Understand, I'm a sinner. Everybody, one that I meet is a sinner, but God loves them. God loves me. And our value is found in the love of God. And we begin to think biblically, think biblically, think biblically about ourselves and others. Satan loves to attack our thoughts in regards to how we think about others and how we think about ourselves. We're starting to elevate somebody. We're starting to destroy somebody. We're starting to elevate ourselves. We're starting to destroy ourselves. And we just need to think biblically. We need to bring it back to the obedience of Christ and say, well, I know that person's a sinner and I know they're loved by God. I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm loved by God. And we're, we're beginning to think in that biblical mindset. In verse seven, for who makes you different from another and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? These are three questions to humble the proud. For what makes you differ from somebody else? Maybe it's physically. You know, you're one of those just really attractive people. What made you more attractive than everybody else? Well, the Lord. The Lord did that. Maybe you're really good at music. It's amazing how some people are good at music. Some seven-year-olds have this amazing talent for music. We got together with some friends that now live in St. Louis, and they were out for a camping trip, and their little boy's now seven, and he started, like, guitar lessons three months ago, and he knows, like, 12 songs. And they're, they're really hard songs, and the rhythm comes naturally. Where'd that come from? It came from the Lord. The Lord gave that little boy some some musical talent. What, what makes you differ, you know? What makes you really good at engineering? What, what makes you really good at mathematics? What re makes you really good at languages? What is it? It was the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing with God's love? That he would take the time to engineer each of us uniquely and give us talents and gifts. It's a big part of life of simply finding where God has gifted you and what he has entrusted you with to be able to do for his glory. But it's God who's, who's made you differ. And what do you have that you didn't receive? 
And we, we kind of go, hey, 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 wait a second here. I worked really hard for that. I, I pressed in. I know a lot of people that didn't work, so they don't have what I have. Well, who gave you the health to be able to work hard? Who gave you the determination to work hard? Who blessed your hard work? I know a lot of people who've worked really hard who maybe haven't received what you've received. It's God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Even the ability to work hard comes from the Lord. There's nothing good in our lives that we haven't received from God. And here's the last question. So why do you act like you didn't receive it? Why do you go around boasting as though God didn't give it to you? So our joy is found in boasting in the giver, not in of ourselves. And that's where Paul's getting this church to reorient their thinking, to how they think about themselves and how they think about others. Verse eight, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Paul is using sarcasm in his teaching to the church of Corinth. He's saying, oh, but you know what, guys? This doesn't really apply to you because you've got it all figured out. The church of Corinth in their carnality didn't realize that they're naked, poor, and weak before the Lord. They hadn't come to Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Not that they weren't believers, but they had lost sight of their brokenness before God. And so Paul's pointing that out and he's saying, hey, you guys are kings. You guys are rich. You guys don't see your need for God to to work in your life. And that's a scary place to be, isn't it? If we get to that place where we're no longer broken before the Lord, we no longer see our need for him to work in our lives. And that's what what Paul is speaking to in verse 8. In verse 9, he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, for we had been a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So here you guys got it all figured out. You're ruling as rich kings, but we as apostles, those that have been sent out, God has displayed us as men condemned to death. The image here is the Roman Colosseum. That's the image that Paul is painting in this culture as men that are spectacles, men that are on display, that are condemned to death. And Paul says, I realized when I came to follow Christ and be sent out into God's work that I've been stamped with death upon my shoulder. I'm condemned to death. I'm willing to die for Christ. I'm gonna daily take up my cross and follow Christ. And Paul's really confronting how comfortable this church is with how Paul is willing to sacrifice for the kingdom, but it's for the purpose for the church to listen to Paul again. Paul's not bragging. He wants the opportunity to invest in them spiritually again. And he also says we've been made a spectacle to the world. And the word spectacle in the Greek is where we get our English word theater. We've been made a movie to the world. And then it also says to men and angels. Angels are looking down going, wow, did you see the sacrifice that Paul's making? Do you see that Paul's not even concerned with this life? He's concerned with with eternity? That that got my attention. (laughs) That's interesting that angels would be paying attention to what's going down here on earth. I wonder what angels' perspective is. First, I bet they're blown away that God would even love us. 
I see Christ, I see these knuckleheads, I see Christ, I see these knuckleheads, and God gave his son for these guys? Okay, God, I trust you, right? Then he's looking down at our lives going, why are you wasting all your time and energy on this? This is the angels, right? Going, don't you get, you're just about ready to step into eternity? And then they see others investing in eternity. Oh, they got it, they got it. So the angels are watching this as well. This would not be something that anyone would aspire to in the Greek culture, the church of Corinth. I am condemned to death like the Colosseum, no thanks. I'm made a spectacle. My life is made a a theater for for other people to watch. But this is what Paul has owned in, in his identity and it comes into verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So he makes this contrast. He says, as apostles were fools, oh, but Church of Corinth, you're wise. As apostles were weak, but Church of Corinth, you're strong. Well, you guys, you're, you're distinguished as the Church of Corinth, but we're dishonored. And he owns this in his identity. I'm willing to be considered a fool as long as it's for Christ. We've all been fools because of our own foolishness. Amen? Just by our own mistakes, our own bad choices, our own stupidity. But to be considered a fool for Christ's sake, that means we're following the Lord and somebody comes alongside of us and they go, what are you doing on a Wednesday night? What are you doing on a nice Wednesday night wasting all your gas money and your precious time to go to Rocky Mountain Calvary and do what? Worship the Lord, study the Bible, be with believers, take communion. Don't you have better things to do? You're you're so foolish, you know? I am sure at some point when you receive Christ as your savior, since you've been walking with the Lord, you had some family member that goes, what, you're one of those now? You're you're, you're doing what? I knew you'd drink the Kool-Aid, you know? You're a Jesus freak. And all of a sudden you own it and you go, it's okay. I'm willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. There will be those moments when you're pursuing God's call where people will mock it, just like they mocked the Apostle Paul. There was something about the church of Corinth where they looked at Paul and they said, what is he doing? Everywhere he goes, he gets thrown out of town. He gets beat up. He gets persecuted. He seems to have it all wrong. And Paul says, that's okay. I'm willing to accept that I'm a fool for Christ. Now, this may surprise you. You may expect to receive this title from unbelievers, but you'll also get it from other believers. And that's when it hurts the most. This is coming from fellow believers that don't understand why Paul is doing this. And you may have believers that come into your life and they go, why are you going on a missions trip? Or why are you giving money to support missions? Or why are you doing this? Why, why are you doing that? Why? You're, you're a fool. Don't you know you should be doing this? And some of the harshest criticism will come inside of the family of God. And that goes back to what we studied earlier in this chapter. It's I'm a steward. I got to answer to the master. So Lord, if you're telling me to do this and it lines up with your word, I'm trusting it. Now we need to be careful that we're following the Lord and following his word because we could say, well, God's telling me to do this and it's clearly not the Lord. We need to be able to point to scripture and go, this is what the Lord is telling me to do. 
I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, this is what the Lord's telling me to do. And I'm like, that's interesting because it's exact opposite of what the Bible says. Huh, God changed his mind just for you. Isn't that special? And we can walk around going, well, I'm not gonna listen to anybody because I'm following the Lord. Well, we better make sure it's the Lord, agreed? But if it's the Lord and we're following him, no doubt we will wear the fool's uniform at particular times. And Paul was willing to wear that and own that. In verse 11, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. That's intense. Paul's not exaggerating here. He says to this present hour, we're hungry. We don't have food to eat because we're following God's call. We don't have water to drink. We don't have proper clothing. We've been beaten. We have no place to lay our head. We're absolutely homeless. Can you see now why people are looking at Paul as being a fool? I don't know, Paul. I don't know if you're supposed to do that. This whole idea of not having food and not having water, if, you know, one of the things this does for sure is it kind of shoots some holes in the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. You familiar with that theology? It's called the word of faith. So if you have more faith, then God will give you all of these riches and wealth and comfort and a comfortable life. Paul didn't have that. Paul had great faith in the Lord, but he says, I'm homeless. Sometimes God will allow us to suffer so that people can see the reality of the cross. His own son suffered so that we could see the love of God. And sometimes God will allow us to suffer as well. And it's difficult, but sometimes God in his master plan goes, okay, I'm gonna allow you to suffer and go through this so that people can see my glory, so that people can see my love, so that people can see the reality of God. God's more concerned with people's eternity than with my comfort. But you won't hear that in the word of faith movement. You'll hear, well, if you just had more faith, then you'd have plenty of money. If you just had more faith, then you'd be healed of cancer. Sometimes God does heal from cancer for his glory. Sometimes God allows us to go through cancer for his glory. Sometimes God will allow us to have a home for his glory. Other times God will allow us to be homeless for his glory. I like the first half a lot better than the second half, you know, but it's true. And Paul says, this is where I'm at, this, this present hour. And this would go against the mindset of the church of Corinth. We labor working with our hands. The Greek culture had this idea that manual labor was only for servants and slaves. And Paul's saying, look, I'm not ashamed to work with my hands. We know Paul was a tent maker. He built tents, he sewed tents so that he could have enough money to go around to these different cities and take the love of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm laboring with my hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. This is difficult. Difficult. Get reviled to bless in return. To be persecuted and to keep on enduring. To be defamed and to return it with kindness. And he says, we have been made the filth of the world the offscoring of all things until now. The humiliation of Paul. A lot of times in the church today, what do we see as a healthy church? A healthy church growing in size numerically and financially 
and in reputation. And Paul's idea of ministry was the exact opposite. It was humiliation upon humiliation upon humiliation to the point where he was considered to be the filth of the world, the offscoring of the world. Just cast Paul, Paul aside. It's convicting. It's challenging. I wrestle with these things as I read over them and studied them and looked at them today. The Greeks had this practice of they would throw worthless people out to sea during time of famine, and they called it offscoring. So they would go through and they would look for the filth of the world in a time of famine, and they would throw them out. These guys are debits. These guys are pulling down on on society, and so we need to, to get rid of them. And Paul says, I'm one of those. If the world were to look at me, they would say I'm more of a hindrance to society than a benefit. And the church was beginning to see Paul the same way. It'll be interesting to see in the years to come how our society will see committed believers to Jesus Christ. Our culture is getting tolerant of everything but Christ. You can be for anything, but if you're for Christ, then you're a hindrance to society. You're what's holding back society. Are we prepared to deal with that? Are we prepared to say, I'm the filth of the world. I'm the offscoring. You know, I'm, I'm who the world would cast off to the sea because we're the ones that are holding back the progression of society. Paul was willing to own that. We go on into verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. 10,000 instructors, but not very many fathers. What's the difference? What's the difference? Instructors work hard to teach, but fathers invest in a holistic approach, don't they? A good father does life with his children 24-7 provides nurturing, provides instruction, provides correction. And there's a lot more responsibility with the father than there is with the instructor. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great instructors. And if you're a teacher, man, keep it up. You're, you're in the mission field. But Paul's saying, even spiritually, you have 10,000 instructors. You can get a podcast from anywhere. You can pick up a great book from anywhere and it's valuable. But Paul's saying, I'm giving you a little bit more. I'm giving you the investment of a father. And that's all through this letter of 1 Corinthians. It's the heart of a father saying, look, guys, this is what you're doing, and it doesn't glorify God. It's leading to the destruction of the body of Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And an instructor doesn't care. An instructor's like, I've taught you, now do what you want. And Paul's saying, I've taught you, now I'm holding you accountable. And he writes all of this, everything that we've read in chapter four for this one purpose. He's saying, could I please have your trust again? Would you please listen again? Would you look at my life? Would you look at my track record? And would you allow me to speak these truths into your life? Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Wow, (laughs) what a statement. Saying, guys, I want you to follow this pattern of living. It's true for us as well to look at Paul's example as Paul followed Christ and put the kingdom before our personal comforts. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy seems to be the problem solver, the troubleshooter. 
Timothy's gonna come and he's gonna instruct you in the same manner. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Don't you like how Paul describes this? There's some of you that are getting all puffed up. You know, it reminds me of like a blowfish. You know, whatever triggers a blowfish and they just kind of puff out. So there's some that are getting this letter in Corinth and like, what? Paul's not coming? Who are we then? Because he's sending Timothy. We must be chopped liver. <sighs> you know, and you can just see him getting all puffed up. And Paul's like, I know some of you are a little puffy right now, you know, but just calm down. I'll get there if the Lord wills. But I, again, I'm not going to factor these angry people. I'm going to go back to what the Lord says. Maybe you got some people really angry at you. Evaluate. Is there just reason for them to be mad at you? Go, okay, they're just getting a little puffed up right now. So I'm going to settle down and I'm going to do what the Lord has asked me to do. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Saying, wait a second, I thought the word of God is so important. It is. Why is it important? Because it's powerful. The words of God are truth and they're powerful. So God's word comes to us in words that are filled with power. The truth of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the kingdom of God's not word only, but it's the word with power, the power of God. I love verse 21. If you have any doubt whether Paul's a father to this church, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in spirit of gentleness? Parents, ever said anything like that to your kids? Hey, what do you want? I can come home and it can be great or you can have a lot of consequences. It's your choice. There's a part of the Apostle Paul that I wouldn't want to mess with. How about you? You know? I have a feeling if the Apostle Paul were alive today and he needed to come to Rocky Mountain Calvary with a rod, that would be a sobering thing. He'd probably have things headed back in the right direction if there was needed correction rather, rather quickly. Saying, guys, you can either respond to this letter and I can come to you in love and the spirit of gentleness or I can come with a, a rod of correction. A few things to consider as we wrap up tonight is how do I view myself? For real, how do you view yourself? Is it failure? Is it pride? Or is it a biblical view? I'm a servant of the Lord. I've been entrusted these mysteries of God. How do you view others? Man, it's gonna be a freeing thing in our lives tonight if we say, you know, I, I can stop taking people to the human court. I can stop running them up and down in my mind. What do I know anyway? I can't even figure out my own life, let alone theirs. So I don't need to be doing that. How do I view others? And then how much time do I spend in the human courtroom? How many hours do I waste judging myself and judging others? Am I willing to be a father and a fool? I'd encourage you to make that parental type of investment in somebody, spiritually spiritually. Someone even beyond your kids, definitely your kids and grandkids, but even beyond your kids and grandkids. There's a lot of instructors, but there's a few fathers. I was really blessed to be at a church in Nampa, Idaho, just outside of Boise for about a year, right after Bible college, right after school ministry. Pastor there by the name of Rich Wright, and he was a spiritual father to me, and I've had many men invest in me this way, but Rich really stands out because he would call me on the hard stuff. 
He's 20, 21 years old. You say, Eric, why don't you come in my office? (laughs) And Rich was a police officer before he was a pastor, and the two make a powerful combination. (laughs) And he just started reading my mail as a 20-year-old, as a 21-year-old. And it hurt, but it was great, and I loved him for it. Gentle man, loving man, a father in the faith. When I first moved to Nampa, he said, you know, our church can't afford to pay you anything but I'll treat you like one of my sons and you can live in my house till you find a job and, and get planted in the community. And he had a house full. I mean, he already had a house full of people. And he says, hey, just, just come live with me. I'll treat you like one of my sons. What a blessing in my life. Make that investment in others. Be a father and be willing to be a fool for the kingdom of God. As long as we're glorifying the Lord, say, I don't care what the world may think. I don't care what other may, believers may say. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we take communion tonight, would you meet us in your love? Would you meet us in your power? May we soak in how you love us and the way that you want us to love one another. Bring fruit through your word. God bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.